This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Today we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Joint All-Domain Command and Control, JADC2, is adding a new working group to its cross-functional team. The group will focus on using artificial intelligence to enhance JADC2's efforts. The military created the cross-functional team with the goal of using data to inform decision-making. The Army has relieved six active duty soldiers, including two commanders, after those individuals refused to get the COVID-19 vaccine. The deadline for those service members to get fully vaccinated passed on December 15th. The Army has not achieved a 100% vaccination rate. Thousands of exemption requests are still being processed. The Air Force has a new Chief Information Security Officer. Aaron Bishop will lead cyber innovation for the service. He's filling a post that's been vacant for almost a year. In the CISO position, Bishop is responsible for advising the Chief Information Officer and other senior officials on cybersecurity policy, programs, and development. Russia is testing kinetic anti-satellite weapons, ASATs, and China is also expanding its military space capabilities. U.S. Space Force Chief General Raymond says the U.S. must mitigate that threat. Retired Air Force General Kevin Chilton was commander of U.S. Strategic Command, and he's a former NASA astronaut. He's currently at the Mitchell Institute. General Chilton, welcome to the program. Good morning, Mimi. Good to join you. You know, there have been some high-profile missile tests by Russia and China recently. Let's start with that anti-satellite test by Russia. What does that capability tell us? I think it tells us a couple things. Uh, One, that they've demonstrated a capability we suspected they had for a long time. Uh, And two, that they're not a responsible actor when it comes to their behavior in space. I think the third thing is is that uh, we want to make sure they never do this again and certainly do not feel the capability to hold our satellites at risk with this type of device in the future. So what would the U.S. need to do to defend to effectively deter against those ASAT weapons? I think there's several things. Um, We have very vulnerable constellations up at this time. And so as we look to the future, and uh, this this would not be an immediate fix, but an important one, we need to consider how we make our satellite constellations more resilient, more defensible. And so re-architecting the satellite constellations that provide us the services that we've come to depend on, both in our daily lives as American citizens, GPS, and the timing signal that we get from that that's so important to just about every facet of our lives to the military aspects of missile warning and uh, precision navigation that GPS provides and over the over the horizon communications that's so critical for uh, the way we defend our country and the way our forces use need these capabilities we need to think about new ways new architects so that work uh, is started and needs to continue but beyond that I think we also need to develop capabilities that uh, the Russians will look at that makes clear to them that if they come after our systems, uh, we will be more resilient, but we will also come after their systems and remove them from the battlefield as well. The worst case scenario, Mimi, would be if they were able to 
take away our satellite systems that we depend on, and we were not able to do the same to them. That would be uh, put our forces in a severe disadvantage. So to deter them, we need both uh, a more resilient constellation, but we need offensive capability as well. And they would go after our satellites, General, just to kind of even the, the playing field, if you will, because of you know the power of our, our sensors and, and things like that. Is that correct? Actually, they would go after them to uneven the playing field, to tilt them in their advantage, because they have the very same systems on orbit. So as I said, the worst case would be is if we had no GPS, we had no surveillance from space, we had no over the horizon comms, we had no missile warning because they destroyed those satellites, but they retained that capability. That would be a terribly unfair situation for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and guardians to go into, and Marines. You know, there's also the issue of space debris. You were an astronaut. Did you see space de debris? I mean, were you ever affected by it? I, you know, on every, I flew three shuttle missions. Uh, on each one, when we returned to Earth, we had to have uh, windows replaced, which would suggest that we were impacted in more than just the windows, since that was a small surface area. Fortunately, these are very small uh, pieces of debris, some natural and some man-made. Uh, and but absolutely, it's a it's a threat. And the, and the types of debris that hit the shuttles that I flew on were not big enough to be detected by our ground sensors. So when you hear the reports of the thousands of pieces of debris created by the latest Russian anti-satellite test, that's a small portion of the total amount of debris created. So what kind of cost could the U.S. impose on bad behavior in space? Well, there's always the diplomatic approach uh, and to gather a community of concerned countries to put pressure on, sat on countries that uh, do irresponsible things such as this ASAP test. But again, I, I, I also go back from the military perspective. It's not just diplomacy. We also need to be able to, to deter this activity. Um, nations have proven over the years that sometimes uh, the diplomatic pressures put on them uh, do not deter them from what they actually want to accomplish. And we can see that over and over again in history. So it needs to be a combination. There's no one answer here. But, you know, a diplomatic approach, an information approach to educate the world about the seriousness of this and, and the wrongheadedness of this activity. But then there also has to be a military uh, option as well. And economic pressure is certainly one that can be brought to bear. General, I want to ask you about China because there's speculation that China has been testing nuclear first strike weapons. Are American missile defenses currently adequate? Well, we have to begin with the, the reality that we didn't field a missile defense system for the United States of America to be used against either China or Russia. The capability of that system and the number of weapons we've deployed in the ground-based deterrent up in Alaska and California is only meant to defend against North Korea. And so the notion that we have a missile defense system in place to defend the United States of America is just flat wrong against China and Russia. We've never fielded that. And that's been a policy decision. So what do we currently know about how advanced China's space capabilities are right now and what their intentions might be? Well, we, we know a lot because of, not only because of our own ability in the Department of Defense to collect on their activity, but commercial satellites now have un, you know, pulled back the veil uh, in China that normally, uh, information that normally may not you know, find its way to the press. 
but we see them, you know, building um, intercontinentalistic intercontinental ballistic missile silos in vast numbers. So offensive capability, they're, they're building a nuclear triad. So they're, they're changing their nuclear posture. It's not clear exactly why. I suspect it's to be in, put themselves in a position to coerce the United States to bend to their will. And on the space side, we know for sure that they're fielding a tremendous amount of equipment, uh, both jammers as well as direct ascent kinetic anti-satellite weapons, just like the Russians recently demonstrated. In fact, the Chinese demonstrated back in 2007. And unlike testing them, they're fielding them. And so we know they have the same intent, and that is to go after uh, our satellite systems to un uneven our, or tip the, the, the battlefield in their favor yep. by retaining their own. All right, well, General, thank you so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Coming next, the White House has released a framework with goals to invest more in space programs. Straight ahead on Government Matters, we look at what actions could follow that policy. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The White House will update its policy for space with its new Space Priorities Framework. President Biden's goals focus on developing and enhancing capabilities to protect national interests. Caitlin Johnson is Deputy Director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Caitlin, nice to have you. Thank you for having me on. So was there any one thing that really struck you um, about this priorities document? You know, I think the biggest thing is that the document was really a continuity of a lot of policy we've seen on space through the past couple of administrations. And so what has been great is the continual building on what previous administrations have done. You know, space is a pretty bipartisan area of support within Congress and, and generally through DC. Um, and we really saw that reflected in the framework. So were you surprised at the emphasis on military applications as opposed to just civil and commercial applications? Yeah, I think often you assume that um, the Democrats or the Biden administration might focus on things like climate change, STEM education, which were both mentioned in the document, or on civil and commercial space versus military space. But because of the Russian anti-satellite test that happened not too long ago, I think they did feel a little bit more pressured to focus or adjust their framework to include more national security space than what we might have seen if that test had not happened. So what did you see as far as um, an emphasis on improved acquisition processes and then also collaboration and cooperation with other actors? There was definitely a lot of emphasis on working with our allies and partners and I think that is you know continuous throughout other areas of policy from the Biden administration. Um, when it comes to acquisition, you know, that is a huge focus for the Space Force, for Congress, and for the new administration. And so um, we did see that a bit in, in the document, but even more, I think we saw that out of the NDAA, which was just passed. And is that actually going to become a reality? Because a lot of people talk about improving acquisition processes for high-tech systems. It's definitely hard. Um, I don't think anyone has one right answer. And the problem is, is that you have to fiddle the dials. I you know, in, in several different areas until you get what was what is right. I, you know, they are bringing in some expertise from the NRO into the Space Force. They have a lot of support from Congress. They have the money to fund these new programs and to improve their acquisition process. So I think there's a lot of support and momentum. We'll just have to wait and see. 
Well, speaking of money, you know, what kind of investments are we likely to see as a result of these priorities? Sure. So I think we see a lot of investments in resiliency. It seems to be the big new buzzword for space and I think across the DOD enterprise of making sure that our space systems are resilient to attack, that we have redundant systems, that we have redundant capability in case of attack, that we don't lose that space capability that provides you know, such a, um, a strong foundation of support for our modern military, um, but also you know, we see a lot of investment in things like, um, like as I said, STEM education and climate change that we didn't quite see in the previous administration. Um, climate change in particular, I mean, space is where we get all that data to monitor the Earth and to be able to, to affect and, and uh, research our, our own planet and, and how you know, our, our human capacity is affecting it. Um, and so we see that money. The terms uh, leader and leadership yes. are mentioned a lot in this framework document. Why? What's, what does that tell you about the priorities? Sure. So I think the United States has recognized that it can be a strong leader in space internationally and especially amongst allies and partners. We've certainly had the longest history or one of the longest histories in space and there is a real uh, drive for the United States to be a leader on international norms. of good behavior in space, of setting precedent for how to act or keep peace or, you know, keep space sustainable. And um, I think with the, the emphasis on leadership throughout the document, the Biden administration really sees that opportunity and wants to capitalize on it. So you write that in the, in the framework, uh, it talks about protecting against uh, space-enabled threats, yes. but it doesn't really give specifics about developing the right counter space capabilities. Correct. Is that a problem? You know, I think it depends on where you where you sit. So we at CSIS did some research last year looking at what could possibly, what could you do to better protect your satellites, make them less vulnerable. And there are kind of two options. One is passive defenses, so making them um, harder to attack or active defenses, actively defending your assets. So thinking about like bodyguard satellites and things that will target an incoming warhead in space. And so when you talk about counter space capabilities to protect satellites, it's that second category, which gets a little messy when we think about um, deterrence and the balance of stability in space and, and what kind of stance the uh, Biden administration wants to take there. All right. Well, Caitlin, thank you. We're going to look for the national defense strategy and get yes. a little bit more clarity on this. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Mary. You can find a link to Caitlin's article at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, we'll look at some of the top space stories from 2021. We'll be right back. The fiscal 2022 National Defense Authorization Act passed by Congress in early December added nearly $650 million to the military space programs. Congress said in the NDAA that it's all in for space. We'll look at some of the top military space stories of 2021 with Sandra Irwin. She's a senior staff writer for Space News. Sandra, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for having me. So what would you say was the most important national security story in space for 2021? 
Well, I would say that uh, 2021 has been a little bit of a wake-up call in terms of the threats uh, that the military faces, that the entire space economy faces. Uh, we have seen some demonstrations of advanced technology coming from China and from Russia. And uh, just most recently, the anti-satellite test that uh, Russia uh, performed and, and they destroyed uh, their own satellite. But in the minds of the US military, if they can destroy their own satellite, they could also potentially destroy a US satellite. So that's been very concerning. And I think that's just uh, increased the interest on the part of Congress to invest in more capabilities. And I think that's why you're seeing uh, the National Defense Authorization Act propose additional funding. Of course, the appropriations uh, still has not been passed and we may not see that for a few months, but I think there will be continuing interest uh, by Congress to make sure that they provide resources for the US Space Force to develop uh, more advanced capabilities to keep up with foreign adversaries. Um, Sandra, I want to ask you about a question, uh, an article that you had um, put out in October about the NRO publishing its first ever solicitation for commercial space radar imagery. What will the NRO use that for and why is that significant? Well, it, it is significant because radar imagery, what is called synthetic aperture radar, it's a very specific type of data that is very valuable for national security because these are satellites that can see through clouds as opposed to the conventional imaging satellites that could not see through bad weather or clouds. And these satellites traditionally have been developed by the government. And now in the last few years, we're seeing more commercial providers of synthetic aperture radar. So, um, so the, the NRO, uh, which is the agency that develops its own satellites, but also is in charge of providing commercial capabilities for the government, is interested in buying commercial data. And uh, so they have put out a, an announcement asking for industry proposals, and uh, we, we will see where that goes. I think there's a lot of expectation that next year, maybe the NRO will start awarding contracts. The Pentagon created something called the Trusted Capital Program to track Chinese investments in U.S. space startups. Had that become a significant issue for the DOD that they felt they needed to respond to that? Yes, uh, we, we don't know specifically how many space companies the Chinese have been trying to acquire or invest in, but we know that it's, it's, a, it's been a concern in the Pentagon for a few years. Uh, under the Trump administration, they created a new office to monitor these activities. I think this is continuing now into the Biden administration. But what they'd like to do is they would like to have more visibility into venture capital firms that invest in space industry and, and, other, and other defense industries, aerospace in general. So they uh, they created this, this program, Trusted Capital, so they can do due diligence on investors and then they can say here you are a, a, you're clear to go ahead and invest in startups that potentially could compete for government contracts so definitely 
Chinese investments uh, will continue to be a concern just because they want to buy intellectual property that they can use for their own space programs. You know, there's also the issue of supply chain security. How is DOD vetting their space contractors for that issue? Yes, they do have a system in DOD that uh, requires all contractors to provide data on their supply chain, where all the components come from, how safe are they, do they have cybersecurity measures in place? Those, those things have been in place for many years. Um, I think what's complicated things a little bit this year has been the COVID pandemic. Um, there's been a lot of difficulties getting semiconductors, getting a lot of specific components that are used in commercial, all, all across the industry, commercial industries, but also in, in aerospace and space and defense. So I think they are now a little bit behind in getting caught up with the, the supply chain and, and making sure that the supply chain is in good shape. But clearly this is a combination of a national security and an economic challenge that we're still dealing through with, Sandra, uh, through, I, you know, either, even through this year. Sandra, I don't want to let you go and tell you, tell me what you think is going to be the biggest space story of 2022. Well, I think, I, I think the biggest story is going to be the continuing growth in the commercial space industry, which is very important for national security because the government relies on the commercial sector to provide the innovation and the technologies that they need. And this is, you know, applies to NASA that needs commercial innovation for commercial for civilian space flight. And it also applies to the Department of Defense, the NRO, the intelligence community that needs commercial innovation. So I think just like we saw in 2021, um, a, a really, really dramatic growth in commercial space activity, I think that's going to continue in 2022 and it's the question is how will the government take advantage of this technology and this innovation and i think that gets into some of the questions and how will they do new types of procurements how will they do more partnerships public private partnerships and those are things i think are going to be very big stories in 2022. all right sandra th sounds good thank you so much for being on the program don't forget if you miss an episode of government matters it's at govmatters.tv you can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You can sign up for the email list on the Government Matters homepage. We're back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach 
to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.